Hello, friends, and welcome to this week's edition of In-Depth with Beth and Seth, a podcast from Plymouth Church in Minneapolis. My name is Seth Patterson, and I am your minister for spiritual formation and theater. And I am here today with Beth Hoffman Faith, who preached the sermon. And I'm going to talk about that in a second. But first, hello, Beth. Hello, Seth. Welcome back from your quick but significant trip to Chicago. Yes, it was dense. <laughs> I was there for That's like a good way to describe it. 40 hours and every moment of it was active, mm. even seemingly while sleeping. Well, I'm glad to have you back. I am Beth Hoffman Faith, and I'm the Minister for Congregational Care and Worship at Plymouth Congregational Church. And you said some words on Sunday in the last command to preach of this season, uh, because we will begin Lent this coming Sunday. And you preached on the road to Emmaus, Luke 24. And this was given to you by Jim Leslie, who is a member of our church. And this passage has some well, first, we should assume, not assume that everybody knows what the road to Emmaus is. Can you give us the boilerplate version of this story? Certainly. So this uh, is a passage that uh, takes place the same day as uh, the resurrection, um, where the women go to the tomb and find the tomb empty. This is later in the day. Two people are walking the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus, which is about seven miles. And they are sad. Scripture says that they are sad. And a companion joins them. It's Jesus, but they don't recognize him. And so as they walk, they talk, they share stories, their story particularly. And by the end of the road, they get to the the traveler's home and they invite Jesus in. And in the sharing of bread and fellowship at the table, they recognize that it is Jesus. And as soon as they recognize him, he disappears. Jesus will sort of want to do that. And so then the companions travel back to Jerusalem because they need to tell the disciples what happened and what they what they saw and what they heard from Jesus. And it was confirmed that in that last few sentences of the pericope that Jesus had also appeared to Simon Peter and he had risen. In this Command to Preach series, we get passages that are either really obscure mm-hmm. or the most well-known and this is in the most well-known category indeed and And it was a lovely way for jim to to sort of set it up he offered a couple of thoughts with his submission about what this passage means to him in terms of understanding christian hospitality and also kind of the the lifelong journey of faith which i appreciated Um, and i will tell you that when i pulled it while you were in present when we pulled these, you know, I had immediate reaction because it does have such a a personal place in my own story of faith and life. So, and it's not a passage I choose to preach on maybe ever since 1999 because of its powerful personal connection. Um, And so uh, I was both warmed by having to do it and a little, uh, a little unsettled by it, I will say too. So you haven't, I don't think I knew this, you haven't touched this particular passage in the last 23 years? I have I have given that a lot of thought since I knew I was going to preach on this. And I, I believe, no, I have not. Hmm. Because the experience in 1999, which led me to preach on this text, it was um, very significant. And so I didn't really know what else I might say about this text. In other times, I could have preached on it. So I've chosen other passages from which to preach. 
and you talk a bit about in the sermon. And as always, we do recommend that you listen to the sermon before you listen to us talk about it. It probably is more helpful. And you talk a bit about uh, about the experience in 1999. Would you mind in this moment giving us a little bit about that? Of course. Uh, so in December of 1998, my husband and I were expecting our first child, long-awaited first child. We had to move down a fertility road, fertility treatment road, in order uh, for me to have a baby. And so it was the day of her her due date. Um, we didn't know she was a her, but unfortunately, during the birthing process, so I was in labor, um, her heart stopped beating, and so she came into the world still and silent. And it put me in a place that was unfamiliar, certainly unwelcome. Everything I believed about God and goodness and everything in between uh, sort of shattered at my feet. I had lived a very charmed life up until December 1st of 1998. Um, I usually got what I wanted. I worked hard and was rewarded for it. Um, and never imagined that uh, I would endure the death of a child. And so I was serving in a church. There were two of us serving in a church not far from here, but on the other side of the Wisconsin-Minnesota border. And I took some time off. My body had to heal. It was a very traumatic, ended up being a very traumatic birth. And I had to be in the hospital for about a week following and had a lot of healing to do physically, but emotionally I was really wrecked. Grief uh, was all-consuming, and I had resumed my duties at the church in the best way that I could, but what I couldn't do was preach, because every time I would stand in the pulpit, I would start to cry. There was something was it, really powerful about that. Was it because of the pulpit, or was it the speaking, or, or are you not? I think it was uh, both, or bringing forth a the word, interpreting the word, because really my faith as I knew it was just nothing. Mm -hmm. um, I remember in those dark winter days going outside and looking up at the sky and, you know, the star became my symbol for my daughter. Her name is Julia. And I found myself like I could pray to her, but the concept of there being a loving God just had abandoned me. I was never one who believed that God punished us for something, but it was the only way I could make any sense of her death was to think that perhaps I was being punished for something I had done or who I was. And that's a really dark place to be. That really is. Yeah. So as I say in my sermon, the congregation was both gracious to me, but also gave me a lot of a wide berth because congregations really don't know how to deal with clergy in crisis. And grief is this strange path that takes you to places you really never imagined, nor do you want to be. Yeah. You were supposed to be the one that held their grief. They're mm. not, it doesn't go the other way easily. Mm. That's really challenging. And then you came well, first, thank you for sharing this. I know my understanding and talking to you about this um, over the years is this is continually raw and tender in its own way. So yeah. thank you for your willingness to continue to tell this story. You're welcome. I think there's power in the sharing of a story. It's kind of was the point of, of my sermon. But um, I, the other thing I'd like to say is that in the present moment, I couldn't 
people were reaching out to us left and right. We really weren't alone. But in the moment when you're grieving so hard and you feel so lost and alone, you don't necessarily see that. You don't necessarily acknowledge it. But this text helped me to see it. So I really needed to conquer my fear of preaching. And it was this text and this story that allowed me to do it. And since you preached it on Sunday, you you mentioned that several people have connected with you who also have lost children in, in mm-hmm. different times of their life. And that's an important piece of this is that when you shared something vulnerable, that people shared something vulnerable back in connection, in whatever solidarity comes with, with both experiencing awful loss. I received a message from somebody who, who listened to the, the sermon who, who said, I'd never thought about putting myself into a biblical story before. And this was a, a really enlightening moment for them to hear you talk about that, that you put yourself into the story and found meaning, strength, and an ability to do what seemed impossible. Yes. And I would say that I'm not sure I ever did either before, again, 1999 and this preaching moment and the study of this text. I'm not sure I ever, I could identify with biblical characters and and some of the stories, but actually placing myself on the road to Emmaus uh, was a really powerful uh, way to experience some necessary healing. And a lot of it had to do with, as I mentioned on Sunday and in my sermon, that there is speculation that the pair on the road, there's two travelers. We only know the name of one, Cleopas, um, but the, that it could have been a couple, a husband and wife. And I think it was that when that was named to me, or if I maybe read it in a commentary as I was studying this text in 1999, a long time ago, it was that sort of, I had an epiphany. You know, I, I really, I could see because my husband and I were walking that road you know, we were holding each other up in every moment. We grieved very differently from one another, but we felt safest and had the most solace in one another too. And then, then to be able to recognize that Christ was showing up for us in the multitude of ways people reached out to us, some of which we could accept and some of which we were too numb to even really even acknowledge in the moment. And that was also just an extremely kind of a, a revelation for me. Like we haven't been alone and other people are suffering with us. And in fact, since I've preached the sermon, I had uh, my mom, you know, who was a major part of my own healing. She watched the service on Sunday and reached out and was talking about her experience of that time. And another dear friend who happens to be our Minnesota Conference United Church of Christ minister right now, our conference minister. She's a very good friend of mine. Actually, she officiated my daughter's funeral. She reached out to me and she that. just she just happened to um to sort of decide to tune in to Plymouth on Sunday. And so she reached okay. out and we had a good conversation about that time too. So I realized that it's not just my story and my place in the story, but there were so many, many, many key players who were impacted by my darling daughter and her her life was not and death were not in vain. It strikes me as important in this moment to to point out that you had people traveling on this path with you that you were not able to recognize until later. Mm-hmm. Much like the story. Exactly. That 
you were not alone, even if you felt like you were alone, that your grief put up walls around you that didn't allow you to recognize your lack of aloneness, because that's a word. Mm. Uh, And later you did recognize it. And the story does the same thing. Jesus is not shiny and bright and, you know, honking a horn and saying, here I am. Yeah. Yeah. But walks with and is only recognized later. Right. And it's through that building of relationship. People who are, I've had many conversations over the years with people who are trying to connect with people who are grieving and wondering what to do. Because we all sort of wonder, you know, like, I, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to help. I know how, how sad and upset and hurt and uh, painful this is. And my, my advice always is just keep showing up. If you call and they don't return your call, don't not call again. You know, if you email or send a letter and you're not hearing anything back, it's people are paralyzed in that time. It doesn't they don't mean know that, what they need. Right. And it doesn't mean that what you're doing doesn't matter. Um, I think we get sometimes a little too caught up in having something be reciprocal. It doesn't work that way with grief. People land in a, a really tough spot and some days are easier than others. And some days they may be able to talk on the phone and other days they won't. So my guidance is always just keep showing up and whatever way that feels right to you, just keep showing up because eventually the tremendous weight will lessen and there will be recognition. That in some ways would be an amazing end to this podcast. <laughs> but Seth, are you just trying to stop talking about this sermon? No, because there's something else I want to talk about. I'm just saying that was a beautiful <laughs> false conclusion. So I do have a question for you. Yes, please. The end of your sermon. And so I'm. this is, you always ask the how, mm, how do we no. do this? And, and you, I think, tried to answer it yourself <laughs> at the end of your sermon. And I'd like to talk a bit about that. You say... As our road to Emmaus takes us in and out of the hallowed spaces we call Plymouth Congregational Church, may we trust that our place in the story that is Plymouth is one of beloved community called to come together for nurture and to hear a word of both challenge and grace. Called to fill up here through the ritual of worship, the sounds of music, the connections with others, so we can continue our journey out into the world to stand up to injustice, speak out for the love of neighbor, show up for goodness. You see, we are all part of the story and indeed it is sacred. So your how was to connect it into community. Yes. Which as a listener twice was an unexpected direction from where you began from this story that is really unique to a person and those that travel, it, it, the circle is sort of small. Mm. You broadened it to the how is part of large community, community that is not always traveling in the same direction together. And I'm wondering if you could add to well, that dot connection. Well, again, as I was writing the sermon and I used the image of the fact that we're all on a road to Emmaus and what is it that gives us hope along the way and creates community along the way. I do believe it is when we are part of a spiritual community, we have, and we're bound by covenant, we have the assurance that we will have companions on our journey. And as I said earlier in my sermon, people are going to show up in different ways. Sometimes in, in the story of whatever road to Emmaus, 
we are on, we're the care receiver. Sometimes we're the caregiver, we're the companion. It changes as our life changes. But to have this sort of steadfast knowledge that when we go in and out of Plymouth in whatever way that looks, virtually or in person, small group, whatever, that we we can trust that that sort of God gathers us and God invites us into the sacred story and God kind of holds us in that place and gives us, grants us companionship along the way. All, all the things that are represented in the, in the Road to Emmaus text are found in spiritual community. Do you think, and it's impossible to name what a community thinks, right? It's not a monolith, but very broadly speaking, do you think Plymouth right now recognizes that importance? Or do you think that it was your intention to remind? Was it a connection into what we already know? Or was it a reminding of what we're forgetting? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. And I would say both. I mean, I truly feel like my answer would be both of those. I think that I hear from people how significant Plymouth is in their lives. And in their time of need, it is their connections they have at Plymouth. It's uh, being fed by worship. It's their small group opportunities that have given them the strength to continue on wherever their road is taking them. And then I know that we have a lot of people at Plymouth right now who are feeling either disconnected, isolated and alone, unsure of the future of what the future of the church looks like and feels like that need to be reminded that it's within this place that your story is safe, that we are, we are a welcoming community. And I do believe that, and that people's stories are, are meant to be shared and heard. And we can do so in, in the space we call Plymouth. Thank you for joining us, friends, for another In-Depth with Beth and Seth. Be well, take care of each other, take care of yourselves. Talk to you next week. <laughs>